chapter 2, and uh, let's, let's read our passage there. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that they, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. So today, we continue a sermon series called Saturate the Gospel Everywhere, and we're again looking through 1 Peter, and over the last several months in looking at 1 Peter, if the gospel is going to saturate everything, then it must begin with the saturation of our lives as individuals and our lives as a community of faith. And in doing that, Peter, through the power of the Holy Spirit uh, to his church that he was speaking to and also to ours, has really been speaking into what is the church's identity. I cannot stress to you the importance of us as believers and as the church of God to understand what it is that the Bible says our identity is. I believe this is one, if not the most plaguing issue in the American church, is this idea that we have lost whom God declares that we are. And if we've lost who we are, then we have lost our purpose as well. See, mistakenly, we often, even this morning, probably as you were getting ready, um, you told your kids if you had them in, or if your friends were asking where you're going, you're going to church. Mistakenly, we have made the church typically about a, a building that we meet in, a social club, a YMCA, a time to gather or maybe to do some charitable work or a box that we get to check off. I went to church. I would struggle with that as an understanding of what it means to be the church. From a biblical standpoint, I would say that, that the church is less about our structure and more about who we are as the people of God. See, the church is a group of people who have been saved by the person and work of Jesus through the Holy Spirit, who by grace live very differently, distinctly different than the culture around them for the glory of God. As we learned last Sunday, our actions do not define us, but it is our identity that defines our actions. If we reverse this in our lives, um, then we will end up being worldly instead of godly. The church is a group of people um, not to give God more glory. He is infinitely glorious. We can't give him more than he already is. But it is our responsibility as he has placed us. I wish he just saved us and kind of hoovered us up on into heaven. That would have been awesome. But he has left us here for a purpose. Why? To bring glory, the, reflect that glory on this planet. As human billboards pointing constantly to the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is our responsibility. The church is called by God to display His glory to the world. As a people called out of darkness, as we've learned in 1 Peter, into God's marvelous light, we dwell among the darkness as a city, like a city on a hill, radiating the glory of God. 
Jesus declares this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16, when he says this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Oh no, right? But on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and do what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, one of the greatest effects of sin, Satan, and death on the followers of Jesus was convincing the church, those who are saved, that we are a building or a meeting that we attend. This only perpetuates our mistaken identity. When we don't know who we are, then we misunderstand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Yesterday, I had the honor and privilege of once again coaching my daughter in volleyball. And in so, we've told stories before this, that she um, is not athletic. She uh, struggles with athleticism. It's something God did not give her. She's terrible, all right? And uh, yesterday, she was having a really hard time. On, on our game earlier in the week, she actually played really well. Yesterday, her and her team was having an extremely tough time. Uh, she was looking at her family. A girl served a ball really hard, and it hit her square in the chest. And she was like, where'd that come from? She starts crying out there on the court. And during halftime, or in, after we got killed, um, I walked out there, and um, she's just bawling her eyes out. And she looked at me, and she says, Daddy, I'm a loser. I'm a loser. Major case of mistaken identity. Did their team lose? Oh yeah, we lost three times. Did she help the other team? Heck yeah, she did. She helped them real good. We lost. Her team lost. But Ava, and what I had to communicate to her as a father, is just because she has lost a game, she is not a loser. See, sin, Satan, and death likes for us to attract an identity that is not our own. We, as we have learned over the last several months, are the children of God. We are the elect exiles of God. We are the beloved of God. We are the light of God, reflected. We are the stone that is being built upon the chief cornerstone. We are learning over and over and over again who Jesus declares that we are. And we must, at all costs, Remember that so that when we go forth, as we're going to see in the next several chapters, that we do have a work to do. But if we simply do a work, not knowing who we are, then we have missed the gospel. And we just become fundamentalist, legalist, religious individuals. And that is not what God has called us to do. The questions that we hope to answer over the next several weeks is this. How do we live as a city within a city, as he declares in Matthew chapter 5? How do we live in this world, in this culture, but not be of this world? See, over the years, Christians have lived in tension in trying to answer those three questions. And they've kind of come up with three different ways in which we are going to express how do we live in but not of the world. The first thing is, is that we as Christians or some of our brothers and sisters believe that we should separate ourselves from the world. We become a church that is separated from the culture. 
In New Testament times, or in the time of Jesus, there was a group of people. They were called the Essenes. They were a Jewish sect of people. They did not want to be dirty. They did not want to be sinful. They wanted to be pure and live holy and pure lives. So what did they do? They uprooted themselves, moved out to a community called Qumran, and walked around in white robes, tons of bathing places all over their commune, and wrote something called the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were the Essenes. New groups that have a tendency to do that is automatically we begin to think of Amish people, right? They claim to love Jesus. They claim to be followers of Jesus. They don't want to have anything to do with this culture. So what do they do? They separate themselves from all things modern and all of the things in our culture. There have been other groups throughout Christian history who have done this, even monks who have built towers and have lived on top of these towers practically all of their lives, never leaving them because they didn't want to be defiled by the culture. The second way that brothers and sisters or people um, have tried to answer this is they have tried to say that the church is reflective of the culture. So pretty much they take the gospel, they take culture, and whatever is happening in culture, then they place that above an authority above what the scripture says, all right? So whatever's happening, whatever's cool in the culture, then automatically we'll even say things like this. Well, you know, that was during Jesus's time, and that was Jesus's culture, and so that really doesn't have any bearing on us. They'll try to be reflective of the culture. Whatever's cool, whatever's hip, whatever is socially acceptable, they try to blend and make some sort of cocktail between the gospel and culture. The third one, which I believe is the the gospel one, the gospel-centered answer, is that we should be a church transforming culture. So we're not separating ourselves from it, like the Amish, all right? We're not reflecting it. There does come a point in time where as believers, because we're so pro-Jesus and pro the gospel, where we must say things like, no, we can't do this. Why? Because of the gospel. And we want to reflect what that gospel says. So we're to live in this culture, working, dwelling, neighboring, eating, all of these sorts of things. And yet we are to be there Hopefully, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the working of God in our lives, transforming, making better all of those around us. Again, listen to the words of 1 Peter when he tells us this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So today, in looking at First Peter, trying to see how do we transform this culture that we're in, we're going to do that by answering or giving two reasons. One is abstaining from sin. He tells us here in verse 11 that we're going to talk about in just a second that we are to abstain from sin. The second thing that he's going to tell us in verse 12 is this, that we are to illustrate the gospel in word and in deed. So number one, abstaining from sin. Number two, illustrated the gospel in the word and deed. So number one, verse 11, he tells us abstain from sin. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions and flesh which wage war against your soul. See, today's culture is very similar to the culture that Peter is writing to. You watch the news, you read the newspaper, 
you cruise the internet, and you will quickly notice that Christianity is constantly under attack. For some of our brothers and sisters throughout the world, that is through physical death. It is through beating. It is through stoning. It is through crucifixion. It is from being dragged behind vehicles. It is having their necks, their throats slit on national television. For us here in America, our, and what we are dealing with, is definitely a, a very socially being ostracized, being pushed to the margins, as non-believers have become very skeptical of the church. And if you've noticed, and if we've been honest, a lot of the press that we get isn't good press. And a lot of this has to do with the people that they're talking to. But anyhow, whenever you have a group of people and you meet one of those people who claims to be a Christian or a Muslim, then we have a tendency to stereotype all of those people as being this. And this is true of us. Now, this is also difficult because everyone who claims to be a Christian isn't. All right? And yet, we are labeled as all of these things. How many times have you been talking to somebody? I have a real problem um, with hypocrisy. I don't want to go to church because everybody there is a hypocrite. No one really does what they say that they believe. Even Gandhi himself says, I'm cool with your Jesus. I'm just not cool with your Christianity. Why? Because I've never met a Christian who's really sold out for Jesus. This is a major issue, and yet... That is why it is important and why Peter is going to say, if you are my children, as if we are God's children, then not only do we have an identity, but the fruit of this identity is that we live like Christians. Please, brothers and sisters, or people, if, if you have a life that does not reflect the gospel, please, for our sake and for the goodness of the kingdom of God, stop telling people you're a Christian. Because it's really screwing things up. The gospel calls us to live as a believer. What kind of language does he use here? First he says, believe, beloved, I urge you. Once again, he's starting back to identity. We are the beloved of God. Not only is that from God to us, but also as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are to be the beloved ones. You are my brothers. You are my sisters. Whether you don't like this or not, this is you and Jesus' issue, but I want you to know that church, the community of faith, has high priority in your life. And if you're missing that, then you are missing the gospel. You are missing what it means. But he says, beloved, I want to remind you, we're family. This is our identity. We can't lose who we are, or it'll mess up our motives of why we are going to abstain from sin. He says, beloved, I urge you. What does this mean, urge? I plead with you. I strongly appeal. I beg you to do what? Abstain from the passions or lust of the flesh. ESV Study Bible says this, the pleasures of the world are tempting and enticing nonetheless. Hence, there is a great struggle and warfare against such desires. Believers are to abstain from sinful passions, for they wage war against your soul. Holding on to sinful desires brings spiritual harm. Abstain means to, to keep from, to avoid it's written in the, the present tense here in the original language, and this means that it's a continual thing, that you are to continually wage or abstain from sin. Now, if we could be all really honest here this morning, however you just feel like you're, you're due a sin. 
I've been really good. I'm due a sin, right? I'm due getting tore one night out of 365. Confessionally, I have that struggle. Man, I've been really good time for a sin just to keep me humble, right? Just to keep me grounded, I'm do this. And yet, the scripture tells us to continually war against that drift, to continually separate ourselves. Do not even be tempted. Put a distance between yourself and the enemy and the sin and the problem that is in front of us. The passions or lust that we are to abstain from They include sexual sin, yes, but they are not just limited to those things. A great passage is found in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 through 15. It says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. For the desires of your flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, adultery, sorcery, enmity, uh, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I love that phrase, and things like these. What's Paul saying there? Everything, right? That is not God-honoring He goes on, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers and sisters, as believers, the Holy Spirit that is dwelling inside of us because he is declaring who we are also calls us to an action. And that action is to abstain from all sin. Not only the the sins of commission and omission. Like commission is, is we join in with sinful things. You know, drinking, drugs, alcohol, you know really blowing those out of proportion. All, all of these sorts of, of things that we like to talk about in church, about things you should not do. But there's also the sins of omission. These are the things we don't do that God declares that we should do, like loving our neighbor, evangelism, giving generously, sacrificially. All of those things are also sins that if we don't do them, that Jesus died upon the cross for. But not only is on the outward, exterior things that we do and don't do, but the attitudes that take place within our hearts as well. I can be jealous toward you, and you never know that. I could be envious of you, and you never know that. I could have pride within my heart, and you never know that. And yet, the, the Scripture tells us, as the children of God, that the Bible, the, excuse me, the gospel should, should saturate our lives to the point where it is pushing out all the toxins called sin. I was a youth pastor and then a university pastor for a lot, of, a lot of years. And one of the most common questions I was often asked as a youth pastor uh, would be from kids who are dating, typically dudes. 
And some of you have worked in youth ministry before, and you've had these kind of questions. And they would kind of pull me aside, and they wouldn't look me in the eyes, and they'd be like, so I'm dating this girl. Like, like he's doing a drug deal or something. How far can I go with this girl? And it still be good, like right. Right? Can I hold her hand? Can I hug her? Can I kiss her on the cheek? Can I kiss her on the mouth? Like, I, I want to know what is the line, and I, I want to know how close am I allowed in the gospel, in grace, to get to that line without crossing it. And my, my first response was never the response that they want to hear because my first response was, I think you're asking the wrong question. I don't think the question is how far can I go in whatever sin it is. I think the question should be how holy can I be? How holy can we be? Now how close to sin can we get to without being burnt? In English, we have a tendency of calling this drawing a line in the sand. This is where I will not pass. And in cartoons, you always see that because the bully will step over the line and the kid steps back and draws another line. Right? And you have this kind of back and forth, back and forth of drawing of the line. But the gospel calls us for our own good, for the glory of God, and for the good of our culture in transforming it, that we draw clear lines I will not go close to, even be um, remotely associated or tempted by this sin. So the question must become, brothers and sisters, where are our lines. See, we must fight the temptation to serve two masters, to be lukewarm, to weave back and forth on the line. How many of you guys have ever been to a zoo? I think zoos are cool. You know why zoos are cool? Cages. Cages make zoos cool. Lack of cages Zoos are no longer cool. That's called the jungle, all right? Zoos are awesome. And one of the things that I love at zoos is I remember even as a small elementary school uh, student going to Cincinnati Zoo and watching the white tigers. Do you remember that, sis? And they were just absolutely beautiful. It's a picture. I mean, I was like way younger than my kids, and I cannot get that image out of my mind today. I love to go to zoos and watch the apes and the tigers. And it was absolutely phenomenal. And what makes... Watching lions and tigers and bears, oh my, at the zoo are cages because they're wild animals. As soon as you step into that cage, you are lunch. As soon as you put your arm into that cage, you are minus one arm. They are cute from a distance. And yet we get surprised every time we see some magician or circus act, some dude playing around with some wild animal gets mauled and attacked, and we're like, oh my gosh, how did this happen? Sin works in a very similar way. It's extremely attractive. It allows us to believe that a wretched, wild, untamable animal is tameable until it decides to act and turn and leaving death in its mouth. See, Paul reminds us in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, he says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. That's, again, he's reminding us, identity, identity, identity. 
then he's going to tell us to something to do because of that identity. And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetedness must not even be named. The NIV says, not even a hint among you. As is proper among the saints, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, no crude dro- j- nor crude joking. I guess since I struggle with that one, I can't say it. Um, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. What does Scripture remind us here? There must be a line. But, but this line... Mission Church is, is in place that there, there shouldn't even be a hint of these things. We should be living such lives as believers in Jesus in our identity there's, that there's not even the hint of these things coming from our lips, taking place within our mind. We must take every thought captive, every word captive in the working of the Holy Spirit. This is tough. This is difficult, and yet that is why as believers in in Christ, as the community of faith, we must abstain from sexual passions because they will lead to death. I love Ravi Zacharias. He's a Christian apologetic. I'm so glad this dude is extremely smart. I'm so glad he's on our side. He says this, If you find yourself on the other side of the line, May I suggest to you that it was not when you chose to cross the line that it was possible that it was because you failed to draw a line well before that you ultimately crossed. Behind the scenes of godly men and women, I see many of these lines that are drawn for themselves. It is easier for you to say no before you have tasted it than to say no after you have tasted it. What does Ravi remind us? He reminds us of the gospel. He reminds us of these sorts of statements that that we should keep far, 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 far away. Not in belief that if I stay away from these things, they save me, but it is because I am saved, I stay far away from those places. And the thing is, ladies and gentlemen, every one of us know our weaknesses in this room. And they're going to be varying and different for every one of us. Okay. I love Victoria's Secret. That's a great place. I can't even walk by that place. All right. Glad my wife goes there. That's awesome. She's allowed to do that. I don't even want to walk by it because I know it's a struggle because of the, the pretty pictures on the walls and having to explain to my daughter, why is that girl naked? <laughs> It's awkward, okay? Personal deal. Some of you can't walk past good Kentucky bourbon without being like Snoopy trying to find the food, all right? You smell it out. You, you probably need to stay away from bourbon, boys, gentlemen, ladies. Whatever it is, covetedness, being envy. Being, being jealous of these things. Seeing what other people have and you not having it. Realizing that that's an issue. And so we need to abstain, draw lines way before we ever get close to even crossing it. We need to draw lines for ourselves way, way in a distance 
to allow us to be able to abstain from that sin, whatever it is. We must understand the spiritual battle that is taking place for our souls. Peter tells us that our simple passions wage war against us. Do you know that we have an enemy that is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy us and implode the church? It is a war. I don't know about, about you, but again, as I've confessed, this is a daily struggle. It's a daily, minute-by-minute, second-by-second fighting, an internal spiritual war that has external consequences. You know, sin, Satan, and death, they're extremely good at what they do. Amen? They know exactly what will get you. If you remember in Roman mythology, there were these creatures, I'll call them. Um, They were called sirens, and they were these beautiful, naked creatures that looked like women, and they would sing And Roman mythology tells us that they would often place themselves on the side of cliffs close to rocks and that they would scream, or not scream, but they would begin to sing these melodious sonnets and that soldiers on ships would, would see these beautiful, typically naked things that they thought were women. And they would hear their music and they would be drawn in. It's like, the captain turning the ship only to come to their demise because of the reef that they would drive their boats into, causing the ship to sink and everyone to die. Man, sin, Satan, and death works that same way. Sin, Satan, and death will come at you with whatever you think in the depths of your heart and the darkness of your heart and flesh at what you think is most beautiful, only to reveal its mass later and kill you. A consumerism is a huge one of that, isn't it? We as Americans, we really struggle with these things. We struggle with money, we struggle with pleasure, we struggle with popularity, power, all of these things which lead to death. Brothers and sisters, uh, may I encourage you that we draw definitive lines within our hearts and our homes. I'm not saying that you should throw out your television that you can't listen to non-Christian music or movies. However, I do want to encourage you this morning that we should be very careful what we are allowing, whether consciously or subconsciously, to enter into our ears and into our eyes. We're allowing these things to come into our hearts. And right now, I already know some of you are like rolling your eyes at me and you're thinking, oh my gosh, you know, Eric wants us to kick kick the television and only listen to Stephen Curtis Chapman. That's not what I'm saying. However, when we believe that things are good, that are really bad, that's extremely dangerous. I blew some minds this week in my college course up at Western Kentucky University. In my critical thinking course, I was teaching a bunch of college students, and I played them a song that all of you would know, uh, something about taking you to church, and they're not talking about going to Living Hope over here today, all right? And I explained to them, as we worked line by line, what it, well, let's critically think through this song. And then I played them excerpts of what the composer, the writer of this song, even was stating that this song was about. And I'm telling you, it is not godly. It is not holy. It is not right. But 
It comes into our hearts, into our lives. I mean, I was singing it the rest of the day. Why? Because that's how sin, Satan, and death works. It allows us to think that, that really sinful, dark things are good, and that they're okay, that it's justifiable, and yet the Scripture is calling us, if we want to transform our culture, that we are to abstain from this sin. I once heard in a movie, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. I think we can uh, imply that to sin as well. I believe that this is true. Well, let's take it further. The greatest trick of sin ever pulled was convincing us that what we are doing isn't sin. John Piper says this, What this does mainly is sober us up and wake us up so that we don't drift from the world and take for granted that the way the world thinks and acts is the best way. That we don't assume that what is on TV is helpful for our soul. We don't assume that the priorities and of advertisers is helpful to the soul. We don't assume that the strategies and values of businesses and industry are helpful for the soul. We don't assume that any of this glorifies God. We stop and we think and we consult the, the wisdom of our own country, heaven, and we don't assume that the conventional wisdom of this age is God's wisdom. We get our bearings from God in this world. When you see yourself as an alien in exile with your citizenship in heaven and the God as your only sovereign, you stop drifting with the current of the day. You ponder what is good for the soul and what honors God in everything. Food, cars, videos, bathing suits, birth control, driving speeds, bedtimes, financial savings, education for children, unreached peoples, famine, refugee camps, sports, death, and everything else. Aliens get their cue from God and not the world. See, if we abstain from our sin, then we will lead a very... Excuse me. If we do not abstain from sin, then we will live a very inconsistent life. We will take one step as a Christian and the next step as a worldly person. God tells us if we're going to transform our culture, we've got to abstain from sin. The second thing in how we're going to transform our culture is illustrating the gospel through word and deed. Illustrating the gospel through word and deed. He tells us here in verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, Peter continues here. Identity, again, first two chapters and a half. Now, let's get to work. How does this apply? For you guys that are always wanting application, the next several probably months, are going to be heavy application in our identity as believers. We are to illustrate the gospel through word and deed. And in doing so, we're not called to separate ourselves from the culture. We're not given permission to reflect the culture. We are commissioned by Jesus to transform the culture through these actions. When you read the gospels, ladies and gentlemen, who is Jesus hanging out with? The disciples. Who are the disciples? Messed up dudes. 
Most of Jesus' ministry for three years, not that he never has any interactions with the wealthy, but most of the people that Jesus is spending time with in the gospel and in his ministry aren't the wealthy, aren't the popular. They're the poor and the marginalized. They are the oppressed people of the cities. They are the sick, the rejected, the ostracized. Jesus spends most of his time with these people. And even those who are wealthy are the wealthy ostracized people, like a tax collector. Very wealthy, but ostracized and hated among all other people groups. Jesus spends his time with, with fishermen who were completely despised despised. He would spend his time with shepherds who were also despised. He spends his time with, with prostitutes. Jesus came for outsiders. Believers, we must see, please get this, my prayer for us. We, if we're going to saturate the city of Bowling Green, if our homes are going to be saturated with the gospel, we must see everything through the lens of the gospel. See, ladies and gentlemen, you may be materially wealthy, but you need to understand that you are spiritually impoverished. And because we were once spiritually impoverished, we should have compassion and grace on those who are sick those who are poor, those who are marginalized, those who are outsiders. Why? Because outside of Jesus, we are those people. We once was lost, now we are found. We are once spiritually poor, made rich by the gospel, made royal priesthood, holy nation. Why? Through the person and work of Jesus. We must see and show compassion toward all people groups because when we see them in view of the gospel, we realize we are all of those people groups. And I understand this, and this is why I pray this and, and, and pray earnestly to God because I know that it's going to take a spiritual awakening to fall upon us for us to understand that. Therefore, we must live in such a way that reflects not the culture, but the gospel, saturating everything. As a believer in Jesus, you must look at immigration very differently than what you're seeing on current news stations. Why? Because as believers, we understand through the gospel, we are all immigrants. This is not our home. We are exiles living in a foreign place. See, ladies and gentlemen, no matter what popular television tells you or popular news broadcasts tell you, as we even watch those things, read those newspapers and watch those broadcasts, we must view them in view of the gospel. So when, the, when refugees are trying to come and to save themselves and their families from bad situations, we must show compassion and grace upon them. Why? Because we are the refugee. This is viewing the gospel in everything that we see and do. We must be actively engaging the physically sick and those serving and the materially poor. We're going to talk about this in Missional Community Group, but I'm going to ask the question right now. I want you to ponder this. If today was the last time that Mission Church 
gathered as a community of faith, would there be any effect on the community of Bowling Green? This is our last gathering. This is our last week of, of missional communities. Would it have any effect on the city of Bowling Green? And ladies and gentlemen, I want you to know this. If we collectively answer a no to that question, then you know what today is about? Calling a bunch of white folk who are churched up to repentance. He's calling us to repentance. See, the church is a city on a hill. The church is a community of faith that is attractive, that is showing that there is a, a better way to live. The church should be filled with people of, of all races. It should be filled with people of all uh, material successes or the lack thereof. There should be homeless people sitting next to people who live in Old Stone. There should be white middle class sitting next to African American middle class and Hispanics. This is reflective of the gospel that we see within the church. And if we're not seeing those things, it's not a God's got a problem. It's an obedience problem for us. Because what does this gospel compel us to do? What does it call us to do? To live, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. The term Gentiles here, is the way that Peter is using it, is that now there are the believers and that there are non-believers, and he is calling the Gentiles these non-believing people. He's saying, keep your conduct among them honorable. So God, if we answer no to that question, he is calling us to repentance. I want you to understand, and this has been the hardest thing for me and Pastor Justin and others in trying to plant Mission Church, is that I want you to understand that this is not a calling to more events. Not that all events are bad, and not that we're not going to have events. But it's, as we saw in the video, and as I, I believe that we're preaching here today, it's not accomplished mainly through events as much as it is you and I personally taking on the responsibility, engaging the gospel in the everyday stuff of life. What I pray for you as your pastor all the time is that God would give you such a heartbeat for a group of people, whether that's your neighbors or, or people that you live with or the, the homeless or, or all whatever it is, those who are struggling financially, whatever it is that God would lay upon your heart as people of Mission Church to take it upon yourself for, at the sake of the gospel to go into the darkness and to bring the light of the gospel. You know, for me, it's two things. One, I love college students. I love being on that campus of Western Kentucky University. God has given me a specific heart because I was a changed college student on that campus. I love to be around college students. God has called me to that grouping of people. The second thing that he has called me to is the discipling of men. Men who are right now far from God and men who right now have a relationship with God. Men have a deep brokenness for both of those, those kind of men. And so guys like Brian Lewis, who's a part of Mission Church, is, is helping me to, to learn. And to, we're figuring out a way for me to be able to do that on a weekly basis. That's my heart. I'm not expecting that to be your heart. But that's what God is desperate. He's put something in me. Like I just, man, I, I have something that just breaks for both of those groups of people in our city. And we need to pray that God would anoint each one of you 
each one of us to be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he has called you to do instead of waiting on the church to create some big beaver event for you to come to and to check off and to feel really good about yourselves. You and I are to do these things in the everyday stuff of life. Heartbeats. We're not citizens merely of Bowling Green, Kentucky, but we are citizens at work for the glory of God. In the book Everyday Church, Steve Timmons and Tim Chester say this this way. This is the mission strategy Peter gives to the marginalized congregations living in a hostile context. Respond to hostility with good deeds. Live such good deeds that people glorify God. At the heart of this mission strategy are not services, courses, programs, and activities, but ordinary lives live for God's glory. Mission takes place not through attractional events, but through attractional communities. Attractional communities. As we saw in the video earlier, a lot of people in our day and culture are not just going to show up to a church event, but they'll come to your house on a Tuesday night for a free meal. They'll have a breakfast with you. They'll have a lunch with you. They'll sip coffee with you at Spencer's. They will engage in context. People are open to wanting to have relationships with other people. And he's calling us to do that in the everyday stuff of life. Not to come up with more stuff to do, but as you are going, the Great Commission tells us, make disciples. That is our heartbeat. That's one hand, the concern for me as one of your pastors, and it's also the heartbeat of what I'm praying, that God would awaken us as Mission Church, that whatever He is calling you to do, to go and do it. If you, if you want kids to, that, because I, man, I'm all for, uh, against abortion, all for adoption, and if, if we pave the way for more kids to not be uh, aborted, that means that more kids need to be adopted and to foster, man, if God is calling you to do that, then open up your home, if he has provided for you financially to do that, then open up your finances, live generously and sacrificially for that to happen, college students, I tell you all the time, one of the best things you do is not go to college for a year, but give your life to a foreign mission field. Change your life. It'll wreck you. Instead of being jealous of those of us who are married, because there are very few married people who are jealous. They're jealous of you and your singleness. All right? Not that marriage is terrible. Marriage is awesome. All right? But singleness is awesome. Corinthians tells us all about that. Embrace it. You get the opportunity to do a lot of things that those of us who are married with kids can't do right now. But you can. If you're retired, man, you have the great opportunity to be engaging in the gospel, to be spreading the gospel, that that becomes your new job, your new responsibility, that all the time that was taken up by working 40 plus hours a week is now taken up by advancing the kingdom of God. And I want our church to be filled with poor people. I want our church to be filled with homeless people. I want, I want us to have a huge problem, and that problem being we've got to figure out we've got all these different nationalities coming to our church, and so we've got to figure out how I'm going to preach to them because you guys know I can barely speak English, and how do you translate whatever it is that I speak into those languages? But I want us to have that problem. And you know what? That's messy. It's dirty. It's difficult. I mean, I want people with the HIV virus sitting to you next to you in worship. I want... 
I want women who are giving themselves to prostitution. If you don't think that takes place in Bowling Green, I can hook you up with a few people that can tell you all about that. Because it is. Sex slavery, abuse, but it's going to take us, if we're going to transform this culture, good old Bowling Green, I, I wouldn't go there, but we desperately do not get the good old boy mentality about our city. It's awesome. It's beautiful. I love it. That's why I'm so thankful God called me back to this place. But he has called us back here for a mission, and that is the spreading of the gospel. Why? What is the result of us living this way? That through us spreading the gospel and illustrating the gospel in, God, in word and in deed, we're going to get the word here in a, a few weeks in chapter 3. Guess what the Bible tells us here in this passage? Keep your contact among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers... So they're going to speak against us no matter what we do. Guess what happens? They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What is Peter telling us? He's telling us that if we will illustrate the gospel in word and in deed, then some of those people who are speaking against us today, the Bill Mars of the world, the Stephen Hawkins of the world, as they're speaking against us in our beliefs, guess what's going to take place? That when Jesus returns, some of them are going to be found out to be believers. That by seeing our witness of the gospel, by hearing the gospel, by seeing the gospel within our lives, some of those people who are evildoers or calling us evildoers who are slandering us, guess what? God is going to save them before he comes back. And when he comes back, they're going to end up being glorifying God. So he takes people who are evil today, slandering Christians, and makes them praise and worship leaders. This is what he did with Paul. This is what he did with the disciples, and this is what he has done with us. Our identity in the gospel produces a faithful life in the face of slander and false accusation from the culture around us. What are the results of doing nothing? Nothing. If we do nothing, we can expect, I'm not a mathematician here, but I think statistically, we can prove if we do nothing, nothing will happen. Zero plus zero equals zero. Ask Siri that later. She'll tell you all about that. But what are the results of doing something? Two things. Some will slander us even more. But some will be saved. Some will be saved. So our question this morning is, is, is it worth the risk? Is it worth the risk? Do we do nothing? Do we receive nothing? Or do we something, realizing that, man, we're going to be persecuted, we're going to be ridiculed, but the gospel, the work of the Holy Spirit, and God's saving grace is going to save some. Brothers and sisters, I will continue this morning. It's worth it. It is worth the slandering of this culture in order to see a few more enter into the kingdom of God. We are here today and stand before you because many have been slandered to the point of death. May we continue on the legacy of transforming a culture. It can happen it has happened. It will happen again.
May we engage in transforming this culture through abstaining from sin. Run from it. Flee from it. Let there be no hint in illustrating the gospel through word and through deed. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, for this opportunity. Lord, I pray that you have spoken clearly.